Let's pray together before we look at the scripture today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that whenever we're gathered together, Jesus, you promise to be with us. And so we know when we get together here in this school on Sunday morning, it isn't just a bunch of people who know each other and like to be together. It's, uh, it's your people. It's your sons and your daughters, your kids, getting together to offer God our gratitude and our thanks for who you are and what you've done in our lives, uh, to encourage each other in the ways in which we're trying to follow you in our everyday lives, and, and God, to listen for what you might want to say to us. Uh, together as a church and as individuals. And so we come here to worship you and to offer ourselves to you and to listen to what you might have to say through your word today. Help us to hear and see what you hear and see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was in high school, uh, I played basketball and I absolutely loved playing basketball. So it wasn't just like a thing I did once in a while. I was pretty much obsessed with playing basketball. And I don't know exactly what age that started at, but for sure, by the time I was 13 or 14, uh, I just played basketball all the time. And I wasn't on tons of teams, like traveling around playing places. I did a little bit of that, but not that much. It was more like I'll be in my yard shooting from behind the bush that my dad planted when I was like two to see if I can get it to go over the backboard and in, or over to my friend Charlie's house we could just kind of pound each other into the garage door over and over again trying to make layups. Or even in the fall when I was playing football and we'd sometimes even have two practices in one day, I would then go after the two practices to the gym, which was open for people to just play, play hoops, and, and shoot. And I even remember one day the coach like calling my dad and saying, you have to keep your son home. Like he's here too much. Uh, you know, it's a little obsessive compulsive. I'm a little concerned for him. And um, I don't, you know, when you're 13 or 14, you, you can't really explain probably why you're doing what you're doing. But for whatever reason, I don't even really know the reason, I just became really focused on wanting to be a good basketball player. I loved it. I wanted to make the next team up, whatever team I was on. I wanted to make the next team. When I got to high school, I wanted to make the varsity team. When I got on the varsity team, I wanted to play college basketball. And so I played basketball all the time, whenever I could. Basketball became not just something I did. It wasn't just an activity. It became rooted in my identity. I, I wasn't just playing basketball. I was a basketball player. So you guys probably had these people in your school when you were in junior high or high school, you know? Like where they came to school and they were wearing basketball shorts to class. Uh, much against my mom's recommendations. I probably did that, right? I showed up, like, I am a basketball player. When you see me walk down the hall, you look at the, oh, I know that guy. He's a basketball player. He's a jock. Now you've pigeonholed me, right? Okay, you can judge me later. I loved basketball so much, and nobody had to pay me to practice. Nobody said, you have to get this many hours in a day or this many shots in a day. I did it because I wanted to do it. I did it because I loved it, and everyone knew that I loved it. It became part of who I am. We're starting this conversation this summer that I think is super important about how what we love determines who we are. And so the series is just called, You Are What You Love. And we're gonna be having this conversation over the summer, and today I'm just gonna kinda give you a big overview. Small shout out to my father-in-law, Mike Kramer, who made these amazing hearts 
for us to have on the stage. Please give him a round of applause. They look, they look great. When you love something, this is why I asked you during community time, what would other people say you love? When you love something, it becomes part of who you are. When you uh, know that you love something or someone, other people have a hard time even thinking about you without thinking about that thing that you love. And many of you can think of some examples. So uh, what do you love the most is kind of the question for the morning. What do you think you love the most? What would, but it's really interesting to say, what would other people say you love the most? When other people who know you, know how you spend your time, know what you think about, know what you, you know, invest yourself in, what would they say that you love the most? Maybe some of you would say, uh, you know, I love my family the most, or I love my pets the most. How many people know people who love their pets the most, right? <laughs> Lots of you, okay, cool. Many of you would say, I love my job. Show of hands. Nobody. Nope, there's seven of you. Or you love your church, or you love every pastor that you've ever met. You love the Vikings, you love the Packers. You love, I did that in the off-season so as not to cause any controversy. You love throwing parties. Some of you in this room love, love, love coffee. Yes? Yes? I know you're out there. Many people are known by others by what they love, right? We go out of our way sometimes to make sure people know what we love. You wear things to show people, I love this, I love this team, I love this brand, I love whatever. You have vehicles that show what you love. There are brands of vehicles who say love is their brand. Any Subaru fans out there? Some people tattoo the things that they love on them to make sure that people know who they love and later regret that they have put that on their arms. Some of you, just messing with you. What you love defines who you are. And I was, I was thinking about conversations that we have in everyday life, especially now with the political thing heating up. There's a lot of times you'll be in a conversation and someone might look at you and go, so what do you think about XYZ thing. And I wondered, you know, oh, what if we asked people, instead of what do you think, what if you started asking people, what do you love? Because sometimes what we think and what we love are really different things. And some of you have experienced in your life where you think you believe something or you, you think something would be good for you, but you don't really do it. You never really act on it even if you really think it would be good. But you do other things, and you do those other things because you love them, and some of the things you love are really bad for you, and some of the things you love are really good for you. But the point I'm trying to make at the beginning of this conversation is, I think we're driven more in our actions and in our lifestyle by what we love than what we think. And sometimes they go together, but oftentimes they don't, and there's a disconnect between what you think life should be about and what you actually love, what you desire, what you want, what you act on. And so I want to have this conversation over the summer that just says, how is what we love shaping our lives? If you are what you love, then you're going to do what you love. Almost instinctively, you're going to act and use your resources and invest yourself in the things 
that you love. So how do we calibrate our hearts? How do we make sure that the way we're living our lives makes us, helps us, encourages us to love the same things that God loves and challenges the places in our life where we love things that that God doesn't love and that God doesn't want for us. So we're going to take a look at that over the summer. I want to start by looking at a handful of ways that Jesus talks about the things that we love. And one thing I noticed as I was studying this is whenever Jesus is asked a kind of ultimate question, like what's the greatest commandment or what's the point of the whole thing or why are you here, some question that's kind of like that, he always, always, always responds by talking about love. So, for example, when some people come to Jesus and say, what's the most important commandment, what does he say? Yeah, he says love. He says the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second one is what? Love your neighbor. So when Jesus is asked, what's the most important thing about life? What's the absolute baseline foundation? If I'm going to order my life around anything, Jesus, what should it be? He says love. love. Love God first with everything you have. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to love something that you don't love or tried to love someone that you don't really love. It's almost impossible, isn't it? It's really hard to make yourself love something. And that's one of the dangers of, I think, especially those of us who have grown up in the church, we might hear what I'm saying, what others are going to be saying, and say, so i got to work harder at loving people. And I don't think that's what Jesus is inviting us into at all. I think what he's saying is, if you experience love from God, if you've genuinely been loved, then one of the repercussions, one of the outcomes of experiencing that is you can't help but love somebody. You can't help but love other people. He's not saying if you work hard your whole life, you maybe could love God and love your neighbor. He's saying if you're loved by God, you can't help but love God back and love the people that you're near. So, I mean, as a dad, when I think about the reflex that came when my children were born, it wasn't like I sat down and considered it for a while after Cole was born and said, well, I think I can love him. I I mean, it's going to take some time. I'm going to work up to it. It's like as soon as that little kid is born, and I watch Carissa give birth to this kid, it's, it's like instant. Right, dads? It's like instant. I would lay down in traffic for this human being who's literally screaming at me. <laughs> and there's this love that's just, that's just born out of me that was, that was just in there. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. And now, six, seven years later of being a dad for that period of time, it's like it's worse. I love him even more than I did back then. You're not supposed to say it's worse on Dad's Day. I think what Jesus is saying about love here is if you've been loved, then you can't help but love the things that the one who's loved you also loves. Here's another thing he says. Towards the end of his life, Jesus is trying to kind of get these last few things out to the disciples. Put this one up on the screen for me, will you, Adam, in John? He's giving them a number of different points, and one of the things he says is, 
uh, I'm giving you this new command. And the command is, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love each other or one another. And then he says something about their reputation and their identity. By this, by this love that you have for each other, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love each other, if you love one another. So as Jesus is thinking about the very last days of his life and when he wants to make sure that these disciples remember, his central message is, you know how I've done this for you. You're about to see how I I do it for you, and I want you to be known and focus on a singular command, which is loving each other the same way that I have loved you. When, When Jesus is arrested, one of his closest friends, Peter, denies him three times the night before he's killed. And he even tells Peter this is going to happen. They ask him three times, do you know Jesus? He says no. Immediately after the third time, he realizes, oh my gosh, I've, I've screwed this up and I've betrayed this person I loved so much. When Jesus meets Peter after his resurrection for the first time, he asks Peter one question three times. Do you know what it is? He says three times, do you love me? And the third time, Peter's really offended because he's like, I it's almost like I can't convince Jesus that I love him. Jesus asks him the same question three times as if that's the only thing that matters now. You're feeling terrible because you walked away from me in my, in my deepest need. The only thing that matters is whether or not in your heart, in the most honest place, in your core, do you love me or not? And I love the way that Jesus cuts to the core here because we can have all the theologies and all the ideas and all the political persuasions in the world and ultimately it comes down to whether or not God's love has gripped our heart and changed our lives so that we can't help but love other people. What we love defines us and Jesus knows that so he's always telling people what you love will define who you are. If you love me, obey my commands. If you love me, love each other and let everybody else know that's who you are. At the core of the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ was this message of love. Jesus is showing us what God's love is like. A love that is willing to even suffer death on this cross and and defeating death to prove to us that nothing can keep us from the love of God is what scripture says, amen? So Jesus invites people to respond to God's love for them by loving God back. And he's trying to teach us, whatever you love, that's who you are. It's not what you think, it's what you love. It's what gets to the core of who you are. What you know you would give your life for, that's who you are. And so it's really important to be asking other people, what do you think I love? We're going to look at a passage in Proverbs chapter 4. In Proverbs is this book of wisdom, and sometimes in Proverbs it's, it's uh, set up like a conversation between a father and a son, which is appropriate for Father's Day. And in this conversation between this father and this son, the father's trying to say, here's the most important things. Here's the wisdom that I'm trying to impart to you. And, and here's a, a chunk of that conversation in chapter 4, verse 20. 
The father says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Just leave that up there for a minute, will you, Adam? Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows out of your heart. The heart here, as the Bible's using it, doesn't mean our physical heart, right? You knew that. It refers to, uh, it's a metaphor for the core of who you are. And sometimes there's different words like spirit or will that are used in scripture. It all means the same thing. It means the core of who you are, your center. When everything else is stripped away and all the pretending is stripped away, the essence of who you are, that's your heart in scripture. And it's mentioned over 700 times in scripture. Dallas Willard defines the heart like this in his book, Renovation of the Heart. That spiritual place within us from which our outlook, our choices, and our actions come. The, the Bible is talking about the heart and referring to us at our most basic level, revealing what we really care about and why we do the things we do. There's this little story in 1 Samuel where a new king is being chosen, and Samuel, the prophet, is is told to go to this family and pick, the, pick out the new king. And he goes and they line up the sons and the first son is huge, you know, big tall guy, handsome guy. And Samuel walks up and he's like, oh, it must be this guy, the tall, handsome guy. And God says to him, nope, it's not him. Uh, you're mistaken because you look at how people look and you look, at, and you look at what other people think about them, but I don't look at that. I look at what's in a person's heart. And he ends up telling him to pick the, the runt of the litter, the smallest son, the youngest son, the one that isn't even in the lineup when he goes to name the new king. When God looks at us, he doesn't look at what's on the outside. He doesn't look at what you're wearing. He doesn't look at what other people saw on your Instagram account. He looks at what's at the core of who you are. And in sometimes that's terrifying to me, isn't it to you? That God can see what's really going on at any given time in your life and in your heart. You can't fool God. God sees your heart. And so this father is saying to this son, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do is flowing out of your heart. This father is telling this son, keep an eye on your heart. So what does that mean? What does it mean to guard your heart? How many of you have heard the guard your heart phrase in relation to a romantic relationship? Right? What does it mean in relation to a romantic relationship? It means when you're on the first date, don't swoon, right? Don't decide you're going to marry the person on the first date. Is that the right advice? I never knew. I, I went to an atheist school, so I didn't learn these kinds of things. Guard your heart. It means so much more than that. It means that we have to realize, first and foremost, that every single day that you're alive, Everywhere you go, someone or something is trying to influence what you love. Every single day in our culture, in the, in the places that we live, someone 
somewhere is trying to influence what you love and what you want. I read this thing the other day about the malls, the malls that have been constructed since the 1950s. And it said, the mall couldn't care less about what you think. It only cares what you want. So when you walk through a mall, it is wholly designed to shape your heart, to shape what you desire and what you want. So you'll buy the things that they have for sale. And we have a whole system that's based on that now, right? You can't pick up your phone without getting an ad about something that you Googled. They, they are focused, there's billions of dollars going to figure out what you want and trying to put it in front of you every day, multiple times a day, day in and day out. Right? So guard your heart first and foremost means be aware that there are people out there who are trying to shape your heart every day, every moment. And if you don't know that, then your heart's being shaped in a direction that you may not want it to be shaped. The second thing I want to say about guarding your heart is, uh, and Stephanie's going to unpack this a little bit more next week, we need to do a love audit. Does that sound as weird to you as it did when I wrote it down? We need to do a love audit, this question of how do we know what we love or how do we know what's in our hearts? We're going to talk a little bit about some of the things the Bible says, like things like when Jesus goes, whatever comes out of your mouth was in your heart. How do you know what's really going on in your heart and what you love? And how do we know how to invite God to show you what that is and how to shape it? And finally, uh, we need to look at some of the rhythms and routines, the regular everyday stuff. So not the extraordinary stuff that you do, but the regular habits that you have that you, as you're going through your daily life and ask, not just how do they shape your thinking, but how do they shape what you love? Do you love something now that you didn't love three years ago? How did that happen? What did you do? What were you doing in your life that caused you to make a shift? And is that better or worse in terms of what it is that God loves? I read this story this week about a guy who was trying to learn how to run, and I appreciate it because I hate running, as many of you know. And he said, I felt like I really needed to run. I wasn't in the best shape. I was trying to get into shape. And so I started running, and my first run was just terrible. Has anybody tried to run and felt like that was the worst thing they ever did in their life? Yeah, okay, it's not just me. It felt like, I, you know, I can't breathe. Everything hurts. My back hurts. My chest hurts. Everything hurts. But for him, it was, it was like there was a motivation to say, I need to learn to love this so that I can get in shape and stay healthy. And so he tells a story of over a period of time, running, 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 hating it, running, hating it, running, hating it, and then eventually, in really small ways, starting to go, oh, I feel better. And then over time, it, he said, it was like if I traveled for my job and I didn't run, I started to feel worse. So then I realized I had to figure out how to get a run in when I was traveling for work, because now running is a regular part of my life, and if I don't run, I feel terrible. So now I love running. Not me, the guy in the story. <laughs> Don't be confused. That these rhythms that we have, that these regular routines that we have, can produce a new love for something that we didn't love before that might be much better for us than what we were doing before. How do we look at those things in our lives and say, I don't love this, but I really need to. And how would I cultivate love for this thing that would be much better for me? Let me invite the band to come back. I just have one more thing to say. So I'm just kicking this off today, and I want you to start by thinking about this week. 
What do you love? What do other people think you love? And how does that, what does that say about how much you're in line with the things that God loves, which we'll be unpacking over the summer? But I want to finish with this. One of the reasons why I think this is such an important conversation over the summer is that I think there's a real, real danger as this election approaches that, that we as a group, a collective group, the United States of America, people in this country, are going to be more dominated by fear than love. Does anybody agree with that? I'm really worried that in this season, no matter what your political persuasion is, that we're all acting out of fear. That we're not acting from a place of trust. That we're not acting from a place of grace or love. And I think if we could see what was in our hearts perfectly, collectively, as a group, we would see way more fear than love. And when you have things that happened like this last week with the shooting in Orlando, you hear the reactions of people, and a lot of those reactions are coming out of a place of fear, my opinion. And I'm taking this really seriously when Jesus says, in his last days, to his disciples, here's how I want people to know you. Here's how I want your reputation to be. I want people to know you because of how well you love each other. He doesn't say, be terrified for your life and act out of fear, which they, they very easily could have done because they were going to get threatened days later. We have to be the people, the folks who are following Jesus Christ and have a hope that goes way beyond anything that's happening right now. We have to be the people who love instead of be terrified. Yes? We have to be. If we are people who are consumed by fear, what hope is there? And so I know, I know that things are going to get tense, and I know that you're all going to have disagreements, and I know that we all disagree with each other on some things. That's okay. That families can disagree about stuff. That's all right. But let's not act out of fear, okay? Let's act out of hope and love, and let's, in the places where we're afraid, let's admit that we're afraid, and let's, act, let's ask God to say, we don't want to act from that place. We want to act out of love, not fear. So help us, Lord Jesus. Guard our hearts. Protect us from fear because we know that everything we do comes out of what's in here. And I desperately want, and I know it already is true to some degree, that us as a church, that Mill City Church in Northeast Minneapolis over the next four months, five months, would be known as a place where fear has no place because perfect love drives out fear. And we're ready. We're ready to step into whatever it is that God wants for us and from us. And we're trusting and we're hopeful. And we're not going to play the game of being terrified and joining in and making it worse. Will you join me in that? Let's pray. Jesus, we only know what true love is because of what you've done for us. And we pray in your name today against the spirit of fear. We pray against a spirit of hopelessness. We pray against a spirit of selfishness. We pray against evil that exists in the world that wants to destroy instead of build up. We pray against the death and destruction that we're experiencing and that many others are experiencing across the globe. We pray for your kingdom to come 
and your will to be done. We pray for love to be the law of the land. We pray that more and more people would come under your influence, God, and become more like your son so that we all learn to give up our lives for our neighbors. God, we pray that as individuals and as a church, that we would be known as people who know how to love even in difficult circumstances. And God, we pray that you would help us to do all these things, not out of a sheer act of our own will, but because we have a fresh, renewed experience of your love for us. We know that you are our good father. And even though some of us may have experienced bad relationships with dads, you are the perfect Abba, the dad who loves us, the dad who gives up his life for us. And we call on your name because you are our hope. We love you, God. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Encourage us, correct us, and help us to feel and experience your love in our hearts and transform us into the people who can announce and be witnesses to your kingdom and how things work in your kingdom. May there be peace in our country and around the world and show us how we have a role to play in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.